0: Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we pursue the topic which fascinated and concerned Jesus more than any other subject, namely the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that many seem to think that the Gospel really consists only of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now what would that mean then for the ministry of Jesus? What was Jesus doing for those three and a half years prior to his death? What is the point of all of his gospel preaching if it is unimportant for us today? I read recently that Jesus came to do three days' work, to die and to be buried and to be raised again. Now, is that really true? If so, then, what is the point of Jesus preaching before he died? What is the sense in all of that ministry during which he said he came to seek and save the lost, if, in fact, that has nothing to do with salvation. Let's face this question squarely. Was Jesus preaching the gospel of salvation, or wasn't he? I have no hesitation in answering that question in a positive way. Certainly, the message of Jesus, the gospel as it proceeded from the lips of Jesus, is the Christian message of salvation. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 4, verse 43. In that text he said, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's the reason for which I was sent. And in Luke 8, verse 12, in the middle there of the parable of the soils, Jesus said that the purpose of the devil was to snatch away the message which he was preaching, which Jesus was preaching, from the heart of the potential believer so that the believer could not believe and be saved. Now, that makes the reception, I might say, an intelligent and understanding reception of the message of the kingdom of God, as Jesus preached it, the absolute essential for the beginning of the process of salvation. You see, the kingdom message, Matthew thirteen nineteen, the word of the kingdom, preached by Jesus and the apostles, is the seed of immortality. Now, seeds are essential for growth. From seeds come flowers. From seeds come immortality. The beginning of the process of giving us immortality is the reception of that vital seed, that spark of life, initiated by the reception of the message of the kingdom. Check it out in Matthew 13, verse 19, and the parallel verse in Luke 8:12. Jesus seems to divide society, as one commentator has rightly said, into two antithetical camps, those who receive the message of the kingdom as Jesus preached it, and those who have either never heard it, or refuse to accept it when they do hear it. That's a most instructive lesson. The most important thing that a Christian can search out in the Bible is the process of salvation. How is it that we attain to immortality? What, in other words, must we do to be saved? Now, I'm sure you remember that that very question was asked in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. A jailer there said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, most people do not read the following verse, which is essential to our understanding of the process of salvation. Verse 32 says that they spoke the word of the Lord to them and to all the others in his house. And that's when they were baptized and that's when the process of salvation got going. But note carefully, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficiently vague to be ineffective. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? That's the critical question. Now there's another section of Scripture that is customarily used to answer our question. It's found in Romans 10 and verse 9. Namely, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that sounds pretty cut and dried. You simply believe in Jesus and you believe in the resurrection and that's where salvation lies. Unfortunately, however, the rest of the context of that passage is almost always omitted. If we read a little further in that chapter, we'll find in verse 13 that Paul also said, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what does that mean, to call on the name of the Lord? Well, read on. In verse 14, Paul said, How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard preaching? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. And so you see, Paul here is tracing the salvation process back to its source. What is the essential basis for salvation? Well, we haven't yet reached the conclusion that Paul comes to in this section of Scripture. We must not omit the critically important 17th verse where Paul says, Consequently... Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is Messiah's message, the Word of Christ. It is essential, therefore, according to Paul, to hear Christ's message. You see, Jesus did not cease preaching when he left the earth and went to be at the right hand of the Father. The whole idea of the apostolic ministry is that Jesus continued to preach through the apostles. Remember how in the Great Commission Jesus said, Go into the whole world and teach them to observe everything that I taught you. In other words, continue my work. Continue to preach the gospel which you not only heard me preaching, but which you've been preaching yourself, namely the gospel about the kingdom. Now, some seem to have the idea that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, all that ceased. Some have actually mounted a theory by which the gospel as Jesus preached it Is no longer the gospel of salvation. Now that is dangerously misleading. If anything is important in Scripture, it is that we cling to the words of Jesus himself. Jesus is the first preacher of the gospel. It is he who brought the saving message. It is quite false to imagine that Paul introduced a different message. Let me put it this way to you, there is no difference between the gospel of the grace of God and the preaching of the kingdom. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 20 and verses 24 and 25, Paul gave us a completely clear statement on that issue. He said in Acts 20 verse 24 that he'd been preaching to the Ephesians during his ministry with them the gospel of the grace of God. Now, none of us has any difficulty with that at all. We all believe in the gracious activity of God towards us in desiring to save us from our sins, but note carefully what that gospel of the grace of God was. In Acts 20, verse 25, Paul clarifies the meaning of the gospel of the grace of God. He said it was the proclamation of the kingdom. The kingdom gospel is the center and the heart of Paul's preaching exactly as it had been the heart and center of Jesus' own preaching. What we need to do is to tie the teaching of Jesus closely to the teaching of Paul. There is no radical shift in gospel content when Paul began his ministry. Not for one moment does Paul imagine himself introducing a new gospel. On the contrary, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, Paul says that he was preaching the gospel which had been handed down to him by those who had gone before. The gospel he preached was the gospel he had received by tradition, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. Now that gospel consisted, he says in that passage, of information about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. But note most carefully in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that those facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus were among the things of first importance in the gospel. Paul specifically did not say that that was the totality of the gospel. Now, if he had said that that was the complete gospel, he would have contradicted the gospel as Jesus preached it, because we've been pointing out frequently in these programs that Jesus did not preach his death and resurrection for a great portion of his ministry. In fact, he preached only the kingdom of God. And so when Paul comes along, what happens is that the death and resurrection of Jesus are added to the gospel. Now, the death and resurrection of Jesus, of course, were added to the gospel the moment Jesus had risen from the dead, the moment the apostles in Jerusalem began to speak to the Jewish people. The death and resurrection of Christ had become immediately incorporated into the gospel message, but never to the loss of the gospel of the kingdom. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul can speak of the kingdom of God. He says there that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. In other words, in our present constitution, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God of the future. We have to be immortalized. We have to be changed at the resurrection. But you see, Paul mentions the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 15.50, assuming that his audience know exactly what he's talking about. Now, that proves that he'd been preaching the kingdom there, as he always did. Check those vital verses in Acts. In Acts 19, verse 8, In Acts 20, verse 25, in Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, you'll find absolute proof that the kingdom of God was equally the center of Paul's gospel as it had been always with the gospel as Jesus had preached it. Now let's ask this basic question. Have you been hearing the gospel of the kingdom clearly described and clearly preached in contemporary presentations of the gospel? Let me read you the remarks of one leading preacher who said this. During the past 16 years, I can recollect only two occasions on which I've heard sermons specifically devoted to the theme of the kingdom of God. I find this silence rather surprising because it's universally agreed by New Testament scholars that the central theme of the teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. Clearly then, one would expect the modern preacher who is trying to bring the message of Jesus to his congregation would have much to say about this subject of the kingdom. In fact, my experience has been just the opposite and I have rarely heard anything about the kingdom of God gospel. And from a Roman Catholic commentator comes this extraordinary admission. He says this, As a teacher of New Testament literature, it early became obvious to me That the central theme of the preaching of the historical Jesus of Nazareth was the approach of the kingdom of God, the gospel about the kingdom. Yet to my amazement, this theme played hardly any role in the theology I had been taught in the seminary. Upon further investigation, I realized that this theme had in many ways been largely ignored in the theology and the spirituality and the liturgy of the church in the past 2,000 years, and when it was not ignored, it had often been distorted beyond recognition. How could this be? End of quotation. Now, I suggest that those two quotations from leading exponents of the Bible, leading preachers, in fact, demonstrate beyond any question that something is seriously amiss when observers of the Christian scene admit... That the gospel message as Jesus preached it, the gospel of the kingdom, has not been heard in the church's preaching for decades, for centuries even. Now what has gone wrong? What happened to that gospel as it fell from the lips of Jesus Christ himself? I've written a book on this issue of the kingdom of God. It's entitled, The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. I would invite you to request your free copy from us. Just call us at the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. Meanwhile, we invite you to investigate our findings carefully from the text of Scripture itself, and join us again as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.